Good to see you all this morning. Good to hear your voices as we worship God together. We're going to continue our time of worship as we study his word. So if you would open up a Bible to the book of James, chapter 3. And so we're going to jump right into where we left off last week. I'm going to start reading from James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. So if you'd follow along in your copy of God's word, I'll read this to us. Who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. I don't know if you've ever had an experience of mistaken identity. You thought somebody was somebody else, you walked up to them and then realized that they weren't the person you thought they were before your eyes focused. Something like that goes on. I, uh, I know a guy, met a guy in, when I was in college. I went to college in Dallas, Texas. He was a resident of Dallas. And he would get phone calls on a regular basis from adoring fans who had looked him up in the Yellow Pages. So I need to pause here and explain the Yellow Pages. Yellow Pages is a big, thick as you would expect, yellow uh, book. And if you would get the yellow pages from the city, a, a certain city, you could open up and flip through there, find the name of people who lived in that city and call them. Everybody's phone number was there under their names. And so that's why this guy would get phone calls is he had just enough in common with an action hero celebrity to make fans curious enough to give it a try and ring up his number. He had two things in common with this action hero. Number one, he lived in Dallas, Texas, and so did the action hero. And number two, this guy's name was Chuck Norris. Um, we called him Charlie. Uh, he was listed in the yellow pages as Charles, uh, but everybody's calling him. And again, this is a time, this is in the early 90s, and so you had no caller ID. So he's got to answer the phone. It could be his mom, it could be his brother, it could be, a, you know, anybody. So he's constantly answering the phone, which meant <laughs> that in his most exasperated moments, he would answer the phone saying, hello, I'm not Chuck Norris just so that he wouldn't ex have to explain. He's never been a Texas Ranger. He's never known karate. He's never, all these things, right? It's a mistaken identity. And in a similar way, it's possible to confuse wisdom with someone else. So often in scripture, wisdom is personified, takes on personal characteristics, and it's easy to confuse wisdom with someone else. So James here is clarifying what wisdom really looks like. What's, what's the face on wisdom's ID? And James doesn't label someone wise because they have certain things that we might associate with wisdom. He's not saying if you have a certain number of letters behind your name, then you get to be called wise. Or even if you're of a certain age, James isn't willing to just immediately slap a label and say you're wise, you've lived a long time. That's not the way James is thinking of it. Or if you've achieved a certain level of success, while the world or our culture might call you wise, James isn't willing to give it out that easy. So for James, here's how wisdom comes. Do you remember how the letter began? 
If any of you lacks wisdom, let him do what? Ask. If you want wisdom, you don't have to achieve a certain age or achieve a certain degree. What you need to do is ask. You need to ask God for wisdom and he delights to give wisdom. He gives it without reproach. Ask and don't be double-minded about it. Ask because you trust that God is gonna give it. And so in James, from the word go, in James chapter one, verse five, wisdom is presented as a posture of the soul. And it's a posture of the soul that listens to the word of God. James would talk about a little bit later about those who humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save our souls. Those are James's opening words about wisdom, but here in our text, he returns again to the theme of wisdom. Wisdom is definitely the theme of the text that we're looking at here this morning, and we know it for a number of reasons. Number one is just count them up, just do the math. In, in six verses, he mentions wisdom four times. So in verse 13, he mentions wisdom twice. Verse 15 and verse 17, he's in the theme of wisdom. But now, in contrast to chapter one, where he was talking about how to ask for wisdom, here he's talking about what wisdom looks like. How do you spot it? How do you know it's there? How do you know your life is aimed at it and that you are pursuing it and you are taking on the very same characteristics that wisdom has? And James is doing something right here in our passage that we've seen him do before. And that is, he opens up a new topic or a theme by asking a question. And he asks a question right there. Who among you is wise and understanding? Who among you is wise and understanding? Now, whenever the Bible speaks like this, what we're supposed to do, if we're familiar with what the scripture says about wisdom, is we're supposed to push to the end of our seats. Whenever the Bible talks in this kind of way, we're supposed to be all ears and leaning forward because in scripture, if God gives you one wish, you should ask for wisdom. If he offers you just, get just anything you want, carte blanche, you get one thing. Scripture says, ask for wisdom. Trust me on this one. Scripture says, ask for wisdom. In all you're getting, get wisdom and get understanding. Here's what Proverbs 3, 13 and 14 says. Blessed are those who find wisdom and gain understanding for she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. Proverbs 4, 6 and 7. Do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. So wisdom's personified as a woman here. Don't forsake her and she'll protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. Get wisdom, though it cost all you have, get understanding. James loves the book of Proverbs. He employs the very same literary devices that's used in wisdom literature. So he's often called in the New Testament the only of the letters that is classified as wisdom literature. He very much thinks in that vein. And if you've read the book of Proverbs, you see that there are poetically portrayed two women walking through the streets of life. And one is named Lady Folly and one is named Lady Wisdom. And both ladies walk through the streets of life and call out and say, everybody who hears me, come with me and I'm promising you good things. And Proverbs says, if you follow Lady Folly, you're gonna die. And if you follow Lady Wisdom, you'll be blessed. Wherever, if you hear her voice calling out on the streets, let the simple follow her into life. He who walks with the wise will become wise. Here's the challenge though, and James is kind of talking about this very issue, is unfortunately, Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly 
don't wear name tags that indicate which one is which, right? Which is what brings us ultimately to James's question. Who among you is wise? And then in classic James fashion, he says, don't answer with words. I want to see your life. Show me the products of your life, then I'll tell you if you match the description. That's how James loves to think. We've seen that already. So I have two points for us this morning. Number one is false wisdom, and number two is true wisdom. False wisdom. So when James says, who among you is wise and has understanding, it's like James is saying, okay, let's see who's in the room who's got wisdom. Go ahead and stand up if you think you have wisdom. And then immediately it's like James says, but hold on, if these attitudes mark you, you can go ahead and sit back down. It's like he is saying, who among you is wise? And then he says, here's what I'm looking for in particular. So what we see here is God reveals the traits, source, and fruits of false wisdom. The traits, source, and fruits of false wisdom. Look at it with me in verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, so there's traits, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. So gentleness is downstream of wisdom. He goes on, verse 14. But if, by contrast, if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. I wonder if you've ever sought wisdom from someone who maybe had you had reason to think that they would be wise. You had reason to think they would give good advice or they would give good and informed counsel, but you found them to be a jerk. Our, uh, our church is blessed to have a guy named Brian Munnings who serves on our staff and he serves in the role of biblical counselor. He's a, he's a wise friend and he serves our church really well. And we hang out a lot from time to time. And about a year ago, I don't remember exactly when, but about a year ago, he was, he was telling me that he was going to a, a counseling conference. And he goes to a couple of different counseling conferences. And uh, this particular one I wasn't familiar with. And so he told me he was going to the conference. And he goes to the counseling conference. He comes back. And I said, hey, let's go grab lunch and talk about the conference. We went and grabbed lunch. And I said, so how was the conference? And... Uh, if you know Brian, um, Brian is very measured with his words. He's not, you know, lobbing grenades. He's not using very exaggerated language. Um, and so it got my attention when Brian said, actually, I was very, very concerned about what I heard at that counseling conference. He described some of the plenary speakers who gave addresses, widely published counselors in their field, some of whom taught in seminary, uh, departments in biblical counseling, and he said that there was uh, shot through the entire conference a tone of harshness, words that were laced with sarcasm and condescension, and it, it just didn't seem right. It's like how how can you come to a conference and your your whole life is about investing in other people and helping them put the pieces back together, and yet we sound like that? It, it doesn't match up. And yet everybody reads your books because you purport to be wise. It's like James is meddling right here at that intersection, that kind of paradox. Uh, James says, if you want to see wisdom, don't just read the book. Watch the life. That's what's really going to tell you. 
what's actually going on, right? Identify what fruit is being produced. It's like if James were sitting at that conference, he'd say, just taste this and tell me if you think this tastes good. Does this taste like apples of gold and settings of silver, the way that wisdom is reflected in the book of Proverbs? Did this taste good to you? Or did did we all feel a little gross that we were in there and now we're just more angry and condescending toward those who are in struggle? James says, identify what fruit it produces because in reality, those who dispense wisdom arrogantly are not really wise after all. That's kind of James's way. He thinks root and fruit. Let's, let's look at the fruit and that's gonna tell us something about what's really going on at the root. Well, one of the ways, if I can just geek out with you about music for just a second. Uh, so one of the ways to distinguish and discern the difference between a real piano with strings and a digital piano, if you're hearing them and your eyes are closed, um, is that if you play a real piano, you press the sustain pedal, for example, and then you mash an octave in the left hand, and then you can play a zillion notes up top. You can play arpeggios in your right hand, and if you're holding the sustain pedal, all the notes keep sounding. And no matter how many notes you've added with your right hand, those two notes at the bottom are still there. They're just ringing out nice and low, deep resonance, they stay there. Digital keyboards that mimic pianos, you mash that same chord at the bottom, you mash the octave, and then you start twinkling up on the top and doing arpeggios with your right hand. And eventually the more notes you add with your right hand, these first notes disappear. And so you can no longer hear what's at the bottom of the chord. And James says, true wisdom has these deep bottom notes that always resonate. And the deepest bottom note of wisdom is humility. It rings, no matter all the good things that are happening up here that might grab your attention, the deep resonance that's constantly ringing is humility. Humility rides with wisdom. Proverbs 11.2, with pride comes disgrace. They travel together. And then he says, but with wisdom comes humility. They travel together. It's like neither one of them rides on a motorcycle. It's like they had the motorcycle with the little sidecar, you know? And so anytime you see wisdom riding, humility's in the sidecar. Or anytime you see humility riding, wisdom's in the sidecar. They run together. They travel together. James says false wisdom also has a traveling buddy. Envy and ambition. And if you see envy and ambition riding in the sidecar of what purports to be wisdom, it's not wisdom. It's not the wisdom you want. Envy, so that's the word that, that James is using here. It's not, it's not merely covetousness. It's deeper. It's a deeper evil. Envy doesn't just want something that other people have. Envy wants something other people have and resents the fact that they have it. So it's a, it's a darker emotion. And so God put these words in scripture so that you and I, followers of Jesus, can study your ambitions and relationships for the presence of true wisdom. Study the outcomes of your life. Study the fruit that's growing out of the root of your life. Think about it this way. So, This world has a way of sizing up who's wise and who's not, 
who's worth listening to, who we should bring on our podcast and who we shouldn't, right? In this world, here's how things sometimes shake out. You can neglect your family. You can exploit your coworkers. You can exploit your employees. But if you're successful in your field, you can become a guru. And everybody will want to know how you did it except God. Church, hear this. We, we need to let God's word define our ambitions rather than letting our ambitions reign supreme. If, if you give envy, if you give prideful ambition the wheel, it will not drive you to heaven. God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble and wisdom rides with humility, always. They're inseparable. Earlier centuries, some of the great theologians came to refer to the threefold enemy represented in the pages of the Bible as the unholy trinity, Luther called it, the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's the unholy trinity. Where'd they get that? They got it straight from our passage, James chapter 3, verse 15. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, the world unspiritual, the flesh, demonic, the devil. They get those categories straight out of this particular verse. And here's the point. So much of the Bible warns us against acting on instinct. Why? Because I have fallen instincts. Or what do we sing in the hymn? Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We have pent up in us the, the biblical theology of what's called indwelling sin, which means sin doesn't come from outside into my life. It's already there. It's already there. All the impulses and instincts are already there. So when Paul, for example, in Colossians chapter three, when he says, therefore put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. This is everything on this side of heaven. This stuff is in us. Sexual immorality, still there. Impurity, still there. Lust, evil desire, and greed. It's all still there. And he says, but now... Put it away. Put away all the following. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. That, we could multiply examples of how the New Testament uses language just like that. The point is, on this side of heaven, the seeds of all those sins are present inside me. It's a just add water kind of situation. If the weather conditions are right, those seeds grow. You, you put me in a perfect storm, any of that is possible. All we need is the right weather conditions for anger to become a huge problem. All we need is the right weather conditions, if you will, for lust to become a destructive force. Again, a just add water kind of situation, which is why we need books like James. It's why we need wisdom. We need to know our our culture has a narrative. Our culture has a, um, has a gospel, if you will, a narrative of how you find the good life. We need to know that our culture's message of find what makes you happy and do it isn't a solution. It's just more of the problem. Right? We, so we've all got, think about it in this way, we've all got an inner happy maker device. And mine is calibrated differently than yours. They're not all cookie cutter, right? So 
they're wired up differently, calibrated differently. But what if the fall of Adam and Eve meant everybody's happy maker is broken, is not reliable? It's like you don't, you don't just trust your happy maker to get you happy places because it doesn't work that way. The fall interrupted all of that. So James wants them, and by extension, God wants us in this passage to notice the source of false wisdom. Notice how he uses source language. It's not from above. It's earthly, fleshly, demonic. Now, if James were preaching this message here today in front of us, and it was the first time you ever heard it, you'd be like, look, look um, you had me with earthly and unspiritual, but demonic? I mean, seriously? Maybe next time you preach that, if you take that on the road, maybe just dial back the third one. We don't have to invoke demonic powers and evil things, right? We think demonic means pentagrams and seances. Remember the story. Satan was ejected from heaven for what? Seances? Envy. Selfishness. Ambition. He wanted somebody else's throne. He wanted somebody else's bling, somebody else's glory. And so when I blow things up because I'm not getting what I want, I'm following his lead. That's what James is saying. You look like someone. The rancid fruit of false wisdom, according to James, is strife. Doesn't matter what you know. Are you able to avoid fights? Are you able to de-escalate situations? Are you able to mend offenses? Are you able to dial it down and to apologize, to ask for forgiveness? Those are the traits that wisdom teaches us. Can I ask a hard question? Does strife follow you? Does strife follow you? Do the people who are closest to you walk on eggshells, worried if we say one wrong word in representing the problem in this situation, it's gonna be an issue, right? Is there a common thread when someone has the courage to stand up and say, hey, this isn't great in your life. When somebody does that, is there a common thread where the people around you who know you best say, basically in a word, you know what? You just don't listen. You don't listen. You have all the conclusions drawn up before we've even started. You don't draw people out. You put them in a corner. You corner us. When criticism is, is offered to you, it's got to be in the right tone. We've got to wrap every phrase in bubble wrap, right? We have to add a thousand qualifiers and acknowledgments that lessen the blow and the impact to your ego. But when you dole out the criticism, there goes context, right? There go, you, you don't worry anything about tone. That James wants to address, this is an inconsistency and it's a problem. James isn't afraid to say there's some stuff going on in Christians' lives and it's going to need to change. It can't stay there. You're not out of the kingdom, but it can't stay there. If wisdom and humility run together like sidecars, then the moments when my life is fueled by envy and ambition... I need the truth to penetrate my armor of self-righteousness and pride. And that's what James is here for. False wisdom. Second, true wisdom. 
true wisdom. God reveals the traits, source, and fruits of true wisdom. Notice how he pivots in verse 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is, or sometimes it's translated, the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. And so we see here again, just like James did in James chapter two, where he says, I don't wanna hear how faith talks, I wanna see how faith works. I wanna see it show up in the way you live. Well, here again, in this particular setting, James says, false wisdom outs itself. Not just in its words, but in its relationships, in its relational ethos, that environment, right? And true wisdom outs itself also. Both of them have organic fruit that's produced. One of them tastes rancid, the other tastes amazing. True wisdom is otherworldly and it is delightful in all that it produces. And notice how in James, True wisdom is identified by the quality of life it produces. And what does it produce? Well, let's just start here, pure. Wisdom is, first of all, he says, pure. It's innocent. There's a quality of holiness about it. Matter of fact, the word that's used for purity is hagne, and it's similar to the word hagios. It shares the root with that word. Hagios is the word holy. God is the hagios, he is the holy one. And we are called here to have a wisdom that is hagne. It is a holy wisdom, it is a pure wisdom. It, it brings with it in its train transformation and innocence. I think this word pure, the way that James uses it, is a kind of banner over all the other words. So, so James says, it's first of all pure, and then this is, makes great sense in a Hebraic mind, which James loves to think that way. James says, it's first of all pure, then he gives you seven. Seven descriptions of what pure wisdom is. Peace-loving, gentle, compliant, mercy, good fruit, impartial, and sincere. So let's just walk through some of those together. Peaceable. So this wisdom loves peace, sows peace, cultivates peace in relationships. He uses the term good fruits and the lead up descriptions before he uses that term good fruits are gentle, compliant, full of mercy. That's, it's like this, there's this fruit basket and he says what's down in the basket is gentleness, compliant and full of mercy. And then he talks about the wise person's life being marked by uh, unwavering attitude, being without pretense. It's, it's sometimes translated as impartial and sincere. So let's, let's dive a little deeper into each of those words. Gentle means considerate. It means not hard to please. It means not prone to making demands. Scripture requires overseers, pastors to be this word, gentle, not overbearing, not demanding, compliant. That's an interesting word that James uses there. Sometimes it's translated open to reason. Literal translation would be easily persuaded. Isn't that interesting? This wisdom causes someone to be easily persuaded. In other words, it's a demeanor that sits down across from someone and says, I will listen to your side. I haven't already decided who won this conversation. 
I've got my ears on and I'm ready to listen. I can still be persuaded otherwise. I have an opinion, I have a view, but I can be persuaded otherwise. Let's reason together. Let's think about this together. I respect you. Start talking. Can I just say, I wonder if you know what it's like to be married to someone who has this kind of wisdom. I do. And it's delightful. It is delightful. Peace-loving, gentle, de-escalate, reasonable people are wise and attractive. And Christians who are like this make the gospel so appealing. When we talk about mission and going strong in our community, this kind of Christian makes the gospel ring out. It adorns, it dresses it up beautifully. So many of these terms, it's like they come together and they produce basically this concept. They describe kindness. The wise person, according to James, is generous with kindness. Not stingy with kindness, not kind on, you know, uh, leap years or on holidays. Generous. Oh, I got kindness. I got tons of, there's more where that came from. I'm ready to be, ready to listen, eager. James says, full of mercy, full of good fruit. There's tons of mercy here. Proverbs 3, verse 13, I love this. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom. Her ways are the ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. In other words, if you find lady wisdom and you follow her, all her paths lead to peace. All her paths lead to pleasantness. Then he says, unwavering or without pretense. Let's think about that. Again, could be translated impartial and sincere. In other words, James is saying this kind of wisdom isn't prejudiced. This kind of wisdom doesn't play to certain audiences. What you see is what you get. The inside matches the outside. There's no hypocrisy in it. It's not two-faced. You put all this together and what do you have? Jesus. Jesus is what you have. Pure. He was morally blameless. He was tempted in all ways like as we are, yet without sin. In his first arrival, he comes not as a lion, but as a lamb, a pure and spotless lamb. Peace-loving. Goodness, where do we start? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has reconciled us to God through his blood shed on the cross. He is the ultimate peacemaker. Prophecies about the coming Messiah said, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And then the Prince of Peace shows up in living color in the pages of the Gospels. And what does he say to his disciples on the night before he's crucified? He says, my peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Peace is coming, flooding into your life through me. (laughs) Full of mercy and good fruits. You read through the Gospels and what do you see Jesus doing? He's doing good. To who? To everybody. 
He's feeding people. He's healing people. He's releasing them from demonic oppression. Whatever the needs are, people come stumbling toward him. People say, don't let the children come. He says, let the children come. The kingdom is theirs, right? He's just open-handed, wide-armed mercy, showing mercy to his enemies. Titus 3, 4, and 5. When the goodness and kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works that we had done in righteousness, but according, according to his own mercy. We grew up singing a great hymn that said, mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Think about gentleness or meekness, humility. He's the ultimate expression, the incarnate God, the ultimate expression of one who did not seek his own well-being. For you know, Paul writes, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus, the one who trembles in the garden, blood pouring out of his pores, and he says, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus who says, everyone who's tired, everyone who's weary, come to me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This same Jesus who was prophesied in the Old Testament as the one who would find someone who's, who was like a reed, and it was like the reed would never stand up again because it was broken and bent over. And it says that when the Messiah comes, he will not break the bruised reed. And it looks like this, this fire has gone completely out, and it's just this smoldering wick, and it says he won't extinguish a wick that's barely burning. He's tender with broken people. This is, this is the gospel. This is the gospel announcing none other than the wisdom of God. Jesus, compliant. Compliant? Maybe that one feels like a little bit of a stretch. But think about how willing Jesus was to listen to those who were not his equals. Syrophoenician woman comes up and begs for mercy. And Jesus, almost as a test of her faith in the presence of others, says, Healing's not for you. Healing's the children's bread. And she doesn't walk away. She argues. <laughs> she says, yeah, yeah, I get that. I'll grant you that the healing is the children's bread. It belongs to Israel. But surely the dogs can eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. So if there's any bread here on the ground, the dogs can eat it. And so she puts herself in that place and Jesus says, great is your faith. Jesus hears, he hears our cries. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. You think about the scandal of this goodness, right? If anyone ever had cause to close his ears and ridicule the sad state the world was in, it's not you, it's Jesus. We grew up singing another song that talked about the Jesus who hears our cries. Now let us have a little talk <laughs> with Jesus. Let us Tell him all about it. Tell him all about our sorrows. He will hear our faintest cry and he will answer by and by. Unwavering and without pretense. Unwavering means impartial. It means unbribable. It means not for sale. Jesus is no respecter of persons. There's no selective outrage in Jesus, right? So what does he do? He rebukes Peter, James, and John as quickly as he does the Pharisees. 
He calls his lead guy, get behind me, Satan. He doesn't play favorites. Jesus tells a Roman ruler who thinks he's all that, and he says, yeah, hold on, for clarity's sake, you would have no power over me if it weren't granted to you from my father. But then he turns around, not a Roman, and he turns to his own kinsmen, religious leaders, and he says, so you're, you're blind guides and you're causing little ones to stumble and you're gonna burn for this. No respecter of persons, absolutely sincere. First Peter 2, 22, no deceit was found in his mouth. He was neither double-minded nor double-tongued. So, if that is the picture of true wisdom, the painful question is, how's that working out for you? I'm toast. I'm not, I'm not encouraged by that little exercise just now, looking intently at the wisdom, beauty of the life of Jesus. Then I look in the mirror and it's like, oh, great, thanks, James. Uh, you, you don't have the gift of encouragement, I'll tell you that, right? What's the, what's the frustrating reality of the fact that sanctification is progressive? The frustrating reality of progressive sanctification is I want to be like Jesus, but I'm not. I want to act like Jesus, but I haven't. So here's gospel clarity for us. We don't reach heaven after having proven ourselves to be wise. James, for clarity, everybody, James is not telling us how to reach heaven. No, God doesn't save the wise and the righteous. God saves fools and sinners who come to Christ alone for rescue. Jesus dies, not just our example, right? He's not just our example of wisdom, our example of righteousness. He gives his life as a substitute for us so that his wisdom might cover my foolishness and so that his righteousness might cover my sin. That's why we call it good news. That's why we call it a gospel. Here's what Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, so that let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We only reach heaven one way. God comes down and saves us. God comes down in the form of his son. The eternal son of God became man. He takes on human flesh. He dies as a substitute, bearing our sin in our place, purchasing your full forgiveness by his blood and then rising again from the dead so that you can be right with God the moment you believe in him. The gospel's news is God's eternal wisdom on display. One of the great modern hymns that was written about 20-something years ago and it said, what wisdom once devised a plan where all our sin and pride was placed upon the perfect lamb who suffered, bled, and died, the wisdom of a sovereign God whose greatness will be shown when those who crucified the Son rejoice around the throne. There's good news. There's good news for fools like us, and the good news for fools like us is Jesus possesses wisdom's ID and he is ours by faith. Make him yours by faith. Run to Christ in Christ alone. Turn and trust in him alone. So Brooke Hills, just three things, I'll be brief. Number one, ask the Holy Spirit to help you see 
and then fight selfishness in you. Remember where James began. If any of you lacks this, the things that we've been talking about for the last whatever, let him ask of God. So we're not talking about bootstraps. We're not talking about self-effort. We're talking about owning up and asking for help. Owning up and asking for grace. Two, think, how can I practice this today? It's a very James way of thinking. How can I practice this today? Less demand and more sacrifice. Less escalation and more sowing of peace. Maybe one way to do that is post these verses on the fridge. Post the verse 17 and 18 on the shaving mirror, right? And post it because when we humbly receive the implanted word, that's where we experience transformation. And third, look to Christ. In a word, that's the best thing we say every Sunday. In some way or another, every Sunday, we want to say, Jesus is sufficient for this. Every Sunday is a reorientation to the massive hope-giving realities of the gospel. We sing ourselves deeper into the faith. We see it in the waters when they're stirred in baptism. We hear it in the prayers. We hear it in the preaching. We see it at the table of the Lord. Isn't it amazing that God would command his people for all times when they gather in his name to do things that remind us he is all we need. He is our wisdom. And James wants to say, He who walks with the wise will become wise.